Good morning. Let's begin our time with prayer. Father, that is our prayer, that you would have your own way, that you would teach us, that you would mold us. Pray that even through this this session, as we think upon the life of Amy Carmichael, that you might strengthen our faith to trust you, that we might endure to the end. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for the last few years, I have chosen to look at a figure from church history that we might consider how that person might teach us with regards to prayer. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the life of Amy Carmichael. And I want us to begin by looking at uh, turning to John 15. We've been in John 15 with Buddy Spivey and... I want us to consider two verses there as we begin our time together. And I'm going to put them up here as well on the screen. John 15, verses 7 and 8. We read there, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And I believe these words can describe Amy Carmichael's life because she was one who sought to abide in Christ. And Christ, if you've, if you've read her writings, you know that Christ's words did abide in her. And she did a lot of asking. And she saw God move in powerful ways in answer to her prayers. And I believe there's a relationship here in the text between asking, praying, and bearing fruit. And she bore a lot of fruit because she did a lot of praying. And God the Father was glorified by her life and she proved to be Christ's disciple. And so we're going to consider her life this morning. It begins in 1867. She was born in Millau, Northern Ireland, into a godly home. She was the oldest of seven children and was, quote, impulsive, headstrong, and tomboyish. She spent three years at a boarding school where a fellow student later remembered her as, quote, a rather wild Irish girl who was often in trouble with the mistresses as she was something of a rebel. Although she grew up being taught the scriptures, it wasn't until she was 16 years of age that the truths of the gospel became a personal reality in her own life. Amy describes what happened as she attended a lecture at a missions conference. She writes, After his address, he told us to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, and then be quiet. And during those quiet few minutes, in his great mercy, the good shepherd answered the prayers of my mother and father and many other loving ones and drew me, even me, into his fold. Her father owned a mill and was quite successful in his business, even introducing new technologies and wheat grinding. But sometime in the 1880s, Amy's dad ran into financial trouble and weakened by the pressure, he developed double pneumonia and died at the age of 54. 
Amy was just 18 years old. With her dad's passing, Amy took on more responsibilities at home, becoming almost a second mother to her siblings. Along with her responsibilities, she also began a ministry among the shawlies. These were mill girls who wore shawls instead of hats and were looked down on by the respectable folk. After attending a Keswick conference, Amy began to feel a deep burden for those who had never heard the gospel. And in time, it became clear to Amy that the Lord was calling her to missions overseas. And so in 1893, she began to apply. She applied with the China Inland Missions, but was rejected because of health reasons. But soon there opened up an opportunity for her to go to Japan and to join a ministry there. And she sent, she was sent out as the very first missionary to be supported by the Keswick Convention. For the next 15 months, Amy gave herself to language study and evangelistic outreach, learning many lessons which would serve her well in the years to come. Her time in Japan was cut short, though, when she succumbed to a painful condition and was ordered to take a long rest. Well, remember, she's headstrong. Instead of a long rest, she took a short rest in Shanghai and moved on to Ceylon and then was called home to England. And while in England, she was invited by a friend to join a work in southern India. And it was only, and so it was only after 10 months in, in, in England that Amy departed for southern India, never to return. Teaming up with a man named Thomas Walker and his wife, a missionary couple, Amy gave herself to the language and then to itinerant ministry among the women. It was common at this time for missionaries, when writing updates to their supporters, to leave out the struggles and exaggerate the successes. But Amy decided from the very beginning that the church back home needed to know the reality of the situation on the mission field. And so she filled her newsletters with stories that communicated the bondage, the presence of evil, the hardness of hearts. These memoirs were later published under the title, Things as They Are, as they really are. Though some disagreed with how she wrote, she explains her reasoning as such. She writes, we believe there is some connection between knowing and caring and praying and what happens afterwards. Otherwise, we should leave the darkness to cover the things that belong to the dark. We should be forever dumb about them. If it were not that we know an evil covered up is not an evil conquered. So we do the things, the thing for which, from which we shrink with strong recoil. We stand on the edge of the pit and we look down and we tell what we have seen urged by the longing within us that the Christians of England should pray. That was her burden. Well, her life work began unexpectedly in 1901 when a seven-year-old girl named Prina, a little Indian girl, fled a local temple where she had been forced into service and arrived while Amy was eating breakfast. She was looking for refuge. And the first thing Amy did was sit her on her lap and kiss her. It was a common practice in India to dedicate young girls to the gods. And these girls would live at local temples and they were forced into a life of prostitution. And soon more young girls found their way to Amy 
and Donover was begun, a home for rescued children. From the very beginning, Donover was a family, and Amy, whom the children called Amma, was their mother. Prayer was central to the work. From the very beginning, in 1905, Amy instituted a day of prayer on the sixth day of every month to intercede for these children who were in danger. She also had a bell that would ring every hour during the day to remind the workers to pray. Well, as the family grew, so did the work. The one nursery led to multiple homes, a school for the children, gardens, kitchens, workshops, and even eventually a hospital. And in the midst of it all, Amy worked tirelessly. One of Amy's co-workers, Blessing, named Blessing, later described Amy's singular manner of moving, quote, not walking, not even running, but flying, always looking at her watch, quote, lest we waste a moment. And frequently, said Blessing, yes, frequently she would say to me, Art thou an elephant to walk so very slowly? (laughs) Amy purchased an adult tricycle and would use it to rush from one end of the compound to the other as she tried to manage the ever-growing work. There were difficult years. The year 1912 and 1913 were one of great trial for Amy. Beginning in August of 1912, Her spiritual mother in India passed away. Not her birth mother, but her spiritual mother. Four days later, little Lula, one of Amy's children, died. Exactly a week later, Thomas Walker died of food poisoning, the man who had encouraged and helped Amy at Donover from the very beginning. A week after Walker's death, another of Amy's children died. Then a few months later, Panama, the beloved nurse, was diagnosed with cancer. And while Amy spent three months with her at the hospital, 30 miles away, 70 of the 140 children at Donover came down with malaria. Finally, in July 1913, to cap it all, less than a year after all these trials began, Amy's own birth mother passed away. And in the midst of all these trials, Amy penned this prayer, She wrote, And shall I pray to thee, change thy will, my Father, until it be according to mine? But no, Lord, no, that shall never be. Rather, I pray thee, blend my human will with thine. A year later, World War I began, and the price of commodities, basic commodities, soared, But God's faithfulness was demonstrated in answer to prayer. She writes, we've never had to labor to prove that he hears and answers prayer. The fact of our existence witnesses that it is so. There were days of tension, days when it cost 15 times more to bring a child from the nearest station than it had cost before the war because of the fall in the value of the pound and the rise in the price of rice, which sent bandy fares soaring as they had never soared before. And yet, we were enabled to go on. Well, in 1931, Amy's life was changed in a big way. She was 63 years old, and she had a severe accident that left her mostly bedridden for the rest of her life. She was inspecting a new building and fell into a latrine hole that had been dug in the wrong spot. 
She broke her leg, twisted her spine, never fully recovered. And although confined to her bedroom and often in great pain, she still found ways to be heavily involved in the work. She would write short devotionals for the workers each day. She met with children and staff members, recruited workers, and continued to make all the major decisions there at Donover. She also gave herself to writing, and by the end of her life, she had published more than 30 books. By the 1940s and 50s, there were about 900 children at Donover, as well as the staff members and helpers necessary to keep such an operation going. But another fall in 1948 caused Amy to be even further limited in her movements. Her suffering increased, and she slept little. And in the midst of her pain, she wrote, I prayed that power to cover signs of pain might be given so that no one coming into the room should be saddened. In an earlier poem, Amy had written, Let us die climbing. And although in much pain and no longer able to hold a pen to write, she continued to write by dictation. She continued to give. And finally, on January January 18, 1951, after 55 years of service in India, Amy Carmichael went to be with her Lord. She died climbing. Today, the work at Donover continues and has even expanded in some ways. Here's some pictures of Donover as it is today. If you're interested in reading more about this remarkable woman, um, I would recommend the following books. First of all, there's Frank Houghton's book. This is the very first biography that came out of Amy Carmichael. It's the, the classic on Amy Carmichael, full-length biography. There's, of course, the well-known biography by Elizabeth Elliot, an excellent biography of Elizabeth, of um, Amy Carmichael. Um, there's also, if you want something a little bit shorter, there's a very good biography by Ian Murray on Amy Carmichael that is not quite as long. And if you're interested in reading something by Amy Carmichael herself, I would encourage you to read Gold Cord. Gold Cord is Amy Carmichael's uh, herself telling the story of how Donover began and, and the work there began. Amy Carmichael was a woman on a mission. She longed that the light of the gospel reached the darkest corners of the earth. And she understood that intercessory prayer was going to be central to seeing that mission accomplished. And so when we come to Amy's teaching and life lessons on prayer, um, we come to... You'll realize that most of her teachings on prayer have to do with that kind of prayer which we would call intercession. That praying that is on behalf of another person. And so let's now turn, as we kind of have her life in the background now, let's turn and see what, what does Amy teach us regarding prayer? What comes out of her writings and out of her life regarding prayer? You all good to go? You have your notes. This is where the notes kind of begin. If you see something underlined on the screen, that means that it's something to fill in the blank. Okay. Hopefully it'll work out that way. Lesson number one. 
We must seek to align our petitions with God's will, not our own. We must seek to align our petitions with God's will, not our own. This is perhaps the most emphasized lesson on prayer from Amy Carmichael's life. The praying is not about asking for what we want, but rather it is the tuning of our hearts to hear and then ask for what God wants. That we need to hear from God before we ask of God. And this was a big part of what she learned. She writes, one of the earliest lessons we learned together was that before asking for anything, we should find out if it were according to the mind of the Lord. The kind of prayer that is pouring out of the heart is different. This, that was definite petition, intercession, needed preparation of a special kind. It needed time, time to listen, to understand, to wait, as the word is so often in the Psalms. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we've desired of Him. And the more we pondered over all that is said about prayer in the only book in the world that can speak with authority about it, the more we found to make us ask to be filled with the knowledge of His will before offering petitions for a desired good. When we were in doubt about His will, as we often were and are, and had no liberty to ask for a clear sign, there was the prayer of prayers ready framed for us, Thy will be done, whatever that will may be. But when we are meant to know our Lord's wishes, we must be shown what they are before we can lay our prayers alongside. And often our first prayer was for spiritual understanding and direction and prayer. She writes, That which I know not, teach thou me. Who, blessed Lord, teaches like thee? Lead my desires that they may be according to thy will. He writes, the careless prayer is presumption. But commanded prayer is obedience. Amy recounts how this kind of prayer was a reality at Donover. She tells the story of a day in 1929 when a child ran to her with an envelope that had a cable inside it. And thinking that it might be something serious, she opened the envelope and read the letter. And it read, 1,000 pounds for maternity ward. This was a huge sum of money at that point in time that had just been donated to the hospital. Later, it was discovered that three months beforehand, one of the workers at Donover, while they were waiting on God and praying, had been led by God to ask for something very specific. One thousand pounds for the hospital in a single gift. You see this individual had been led by God in prayer and had prayed and God had heard and God had answered that prayer. Even in her old age, in the midst of all her sufferings, Amy submitted her request to the perfect will of God. Listen to the gracious way that she responds to someone who wrote to her and who was praying for quote-unquote perfect healing. She says, your prayer for perfect healing went to my heart. God knows how I long to be well and able to do more. But I wonder if the Lord is saying not only to me, but also to you, see to it that you are in perfect accord with me. And then trust me to withhold no good thing 
If health be that good thing, oh, how joyful it will will be. But I want first to want His will. Whatever that will, be that will mine or not. Listen to that. But I want first to want His will. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that with Amy? I want first to want His will. Be that will mine or not. It is there that prayer can help the most. And Amy understood that this perspective on prayer was not just important in prayer, but it was foundational to our entire Christian experience. She writes, there's two prayers, one of which we are constantly praying, sometimes in words, sometimes in in action and thoughts, always in actions. One is, teach me to do the thing that pleases thee. The other is, Lord, let me do the thing that pleases me. As Jerry White was speaking yesterday, I was thinking about this, what I had already prepared, what Amy had written down years ago. And this is what he was talking about, right? Two prayers that we're praying. Lord, teach me to do the thing that pleases Thee. Or, Lord, please let me do the thing that pleases me. She says, if we're honest with our God, He will show us which of the two prayers we habitually use. Some use the first in the morning and the second all through the day. For such, the second is the habit of the soul. Some vary between the two and that leads to an up and down life. But some are growing more and more into the first prayers, an all-day prayer. Lord, let me do the thing that pleases Thee. And their lives are growing stronger and gladder and more equable, more dependable and much more peaceful. And so the very first lesson we learn from her life is that we are to seek to align our petitions with God's will with what pleases Him, not with what pleases us. Secondly, our second lesson is this. Quietly waiting before God demonstrates a desire to hear His voice and pray according to His will. The quiet waiting before God demonstrates and is instrumental in hearing His voice and praying according to his will praying god's will means listening to god it means waiting on the lord for his leading as the psalmist writes lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the god of my salvation for you i wait all the day so amy writes so do not be afraid of silence in your prayer time it may be that you are meant to listen not to speak So wait before the Lord. Wait in stillness. And in that stillness, assurance will come to you. There are often many voices within and without all clamoring for our attention. And so being quiet before God can be instrumental in hearing His voice. She writes, I do not think there is anything from the beginning of our Christian life to the end that is so keenly attacked as our quiet with God. For it is in quietness that we are fed. Sometimes it's not possible to get long, uninterrupted quiet. But even if it be only ten minutes, hem it with quietness. Enclose it in quietness. Do not spend the time in thinking how little time you have. 
Be quiet. If you're interrupted, as soon as the interruption ceases, sink back into quietness again and without fuss or worry of spirit. Those who know this secret and practice it are lifted up. As you've gathered, Amy loved poetry and in one of her poems she writes, My father, quiet me. Till in thy holy presence, hushed, I think thy thoughts with thee. And this was Amy's desire, was it not? To think God's thoughts with him, to want what he wants, to ask for what he wills. But I do want to clarify something right here, which though Amy doesn't emphasize much, I believe she would be in agreement. At least she can't contradict me at this point. Our listening to God consists of more than quietness, more than simply silence in His presence. But listening to God also consists in meditating upon His Word. God has already spoken, has He not? And so waiting upon God in silence must also be accompanied by the regular reading and studying of God's Word so that it might dwell richly within us, so that in those moments of quiet we might be led by God in accordance to both His Word and will. In a letter to a friend, Amy lovingly and gently admonishes her, Are you getting plenty of quiet with God? You often remind me of myself. Too much of your nature is exposed to the winds that blow upon it. You and I both need to withdraw more and more into the secret place with God. So quietly waiting before God demonstrates a desire to hear His voice, to pray according to His will. Well, what else do we learn from our life? Thirdly, when we are assured of God's will... We must prevail in prayer until we know we have been heard. When we know what God wants, what He wills, we are to prevail, we are to persevere in prayer until we know we have been heard. This is an aspect of prayer that is not taught too often anymore. But the great saints of old often spoke of prevailing prayer. To prevail in prayer implies a conflict, a spiritual conflict. And Amy Carmichael understood clearly that as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, who was advancing into Satan's territory, she was in a fierce conflict with the powers of evil. And victory depended on prayer. It depended on a wrestling in prayer, or a persevering kind of prayer. In her book, Things as They Are, Amy pauses for a moment from describing the, the difficulty and opposition to the missionary work there in India. And she asked the following question. Do you think we're writing like this? Because we're discouraged? No, we're not discouraged. Except when sometimes we fear lest you should grow weary in prayer before the answer comes. This India is God's India. This work is His. Oh, join with us then as we join with all our dear Indian brothers and sisters who are alive in the Lord in waiting upon Him in that intensest form of waiting, which waits on till the answer comes. In another book, she says this, more and more as we go on and learn our utter inability to move a single pebble by ourselves 
and the mighty power of God who upturned mountains with a touch. We realize how infinitely important it is to know how to pray. There is the restful prayer of committal to which the immediate answer is peace. We could not live without this sort of prayer. We should be crushed and overborn and given and give up brokenhearted if it were not for that peace. But the apostle speaks of another prayer that is wrestle, conflict, agony. And if these little children are to be delivered and protected after their deliverance and trained, then some of us must be strong to meet the powers that will combat every inch of the field with us. And some of us must learn deeper things than we know yet about the solemn secret of prevailing prayer. Donover was seemingly a happy place. A bunch of children playing, singing, eating, learning. But Amy cautioned her supporters not to be fooled. She writes, But under the happiness and peacefulness there is going on ceaselessly a hand-to-hand fight with malevolent powers. Many an hour is spent by one and another in what St. Paul calls wrestling. Well, because of these great spiritual realities, Amy Carmichael urged her supporters to pray and to pray for what really matters. Not relief from the battle, but rather victory in the battle. She writes, we must learn to pray far more for spiritual victory than for protection from battle wounds. Relief from their havoc, rest from their pain. We must reach the place where we bend all our prayers that way, or, I do want to be honest, our chief prayers. This triumph is not deliverance from, but victory in trial, and that not intermittent, but perpetual. And so much of her writing urges God's people to prevail in prayer, to prevail in prayer, persevere in prayer. But our lesson number four, this prevailing in prayer will cost us personally. And she recognized this, this kind of praying is costly. It requires that we lay down our lives for the sake of another. Friends who care for the children, she writes, and believe this work on their behalf is something God intends should be done. Pray as if on that alone hung the issue of the day. More than we know depends on our holding on in prayer. All through those months, there was prayer for that child in India and in England. The matter was so urgent that we made it widely known. And some, at least of those who heard, gave themselves up to prayer. Not to the mere easy prayer, which costs little and does less, but to that waiting upon God, which does not rest till it knows it has obtained access, knows it has the petition that it desires of Him. This sort of prayer costs. What do I and I in my innermost heart desire, she writes. Is it ease or relief from the undesired or unexplained? Is it any mere earthly good? Then my prayers for others will not do much for them. A fountain cannot rise higher than its spring. Perhaps this is why our prayers are sometimes ineffectual. This prevailing in prayer is hard work, even painful work. Because it requires that we enter into the sufferings of others. She writes, 
But let us pray. But let us press it on you now. Pray. Oh, pray for the converts. Pray that they may grow in Christ. Pray that they may see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied with each of them. And pray that we may enter into that travail of soul with him. Nothing less is any good. Spiritual children means travail of soul. Spiritual agony. I wonder who among those who read this will realize what I mean. Some will, I think, so I write it. It is a solemn thing to find oneself drawn out in prayer, which knows no relief till the soul it is burdened with is born. It is no less solemn afterwards until Christ is formed in them. And so this kind of praying that Amy has in mind is going to be costly. It's a costly kind of praying. But lesson number five. She writes that prayer prevails. Well, she doesn't write, I I wrote this. Prayer prevails when God's people pray in unity. But she understood this. She understood that prayer prevails when God's people pray in unity. This is why she urged again and again and again people to pray. One of the qualities that Amy valued above every other quality in her fellow workers at Donover was the quality of loyalty. She valued loyalty because she understood it to be foundational, the foundation of unity in prayer. And she understood unity in prayer to be one of the secrets of prevailing prayer. She writes, We had learned already that unhindered prayer together was not just expedient but vital. And nothing kills that kind of prayer so swiftly as even the, the, light, the, the lightest flicker of uncertainty in one about another. Perhaps that was why we were first shown the crystal quality of loyalty for our prayer life together was to become the chief thing with us all. And it meant depth of conviction and certain about certain matters and singleness of mind, the opposite of a scattered life which affects nothing. A little further she writes, as we went on continually asking that the way of prayer might be open to us, we learned that the kind of intercession that is like the musical chord, every note in harmony with every other, and all seeking to be tuned perfectly to the keynote, the will of our great intercessor, is something worth guarding at any cost. Amy strove to protect the spirit of unity among the workers at Donover so that their prayers might not be hindered. She writes, prayer is the core of our day. Take prayer out and the day would collapse, would be pithless a straw blown in the wind. But how can you pray, really pray, I mean, with one against whom you have a grudge or whom you have been discussing critically with another? Try it. You will find it cannot be done. But it wasn't just simply to her co-laborers at Donover that Amy looked to for help in the spiritual conflict. But again and again in her letters to her supporters, she asked that they too would pray. She understood that there was great Great power when God's people united in prayer. At the end of her book, Overweights of Joy, Amy concludes, she says, our story is told. If we have shown, if we've shown things truly, we have shown a battlefield. A hand has been lifted up against the throne of the Lord. We look to you, our comrades, to lift up the other hand. Explain the philosophy of prayer, writes Psalm in our answer to our reiterated petition, pray. How can we? Who can? We only know that it came to pass when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. 
and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And so prayer prevails when God's people pray in unity. But finally, and this is our last lesson that we're going to learn from Amy Carmichael. This is a big lesson, an important one that wraps up, I think, what is core to her life and her teaching is this. Accept whatever God appoints. Accept whatever God appoints as being his good and acceptable and perfect answer to your prayer. She writes, one of the hardest things in our secret prayer life is to accept with joy and not with grief the answers to our deepest prayers. At least I have found it so. It was a long time before I discovered that whatever came was the answer. I had expected something so different that I did not recognize it when it came. And he doesn't explain. He trusts us not to be offended. That's all. Don't be offended. Even in our listening to God, in our seeking to understand His will, and in all of our wrestling in prayer, still we do not know how to pray for as we ought. From Romans 8, right? We don't know how to pray. That's why it's so wonderful that the Spirit of God prays for us, right? And Christ Himself intercedes for us. And God sometimes sees fit in His sovereign wisdom to respond to our prayers in a manner in which we do not expect. Which is why I believe we have Romans 8.28 that we were looking at last night. Right after that section on we don't know how to pray for as we ought. Amy Carmichael writes, sometimes people speak about God having answered their prayer. What they mean is that he has answered it according to their desire. If he does something different, they say sadly, oh, he's not answered. Oh, this is a great mistake. Prayer is always heard if the one who prays comes to the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. I know that sometimes we do not see how the thing granted is at all what we desire. And yet it is. For after all, what is the deepest What the deepest in us wanted was not our own natural will, but the will of our Father. Panamao was Amy's trusted and dearly loved co-worker who had been with her from the very beginning of the work at Donover. And Amy explains here her struggle to accept God's will when Panama was diagnosed with cancer. Listen to her, her struggle The searching forces of bereavement were close upon us. Panama, also named Golden, with whom the earliest journeys on behalf of the children had been undertaken, she who had cared so faithfully for the little nursery in Nivor, gradually failed and soon became very ill. We had no liberty of spirit to claim healing. We knew our father. There was no need for persuasion. Would not his fatherliness be longing to give us our heart's desire, if I may put it so? How could we press him as though he were not our most, our own most loving father? And in that understanding with him, we lived through the next two years. But it was soon evident that healing as by the touch of his hand was not to be. Now, on August 26, 1915, Panama was received into the celestial city. 
and to us again was set the hard lesson to learn how to do without. Now listen carefully to what she says here. No, it is not by giving us back what he has taken that our God teaches us his deepest lessons. But by patiently waiting beside us till we can say, I accept the will of my God as good and acceptable and perfect for loss or for gain. This word for word was the lesson set to us to learn. And what follows this in her account, what follows is a poem which Amy wrote. And the last line of this poem has been a source of encouragement to many people. And I trust it will be an encouragement to you as well. This poem answers the question, where is peace to be found? Where do we find peace? Listen to what she writes. He said, I will forget the dying faces, the empty places. They shall be filled again. Oh, voices moaning deep within me, cease. But vain the word, vain, vain. Not in forgetting lieth peace. He said, I will crowd action upon action. The strife of faction shall stir me and sustain. O oh, tears that drown the fire of manhood, cease. But vain, the words, vain, vain. Not an endeavor lieth peace. He said, I will withdraw me and be quiet. Why meddle in life's riot? Shut be my door to pain. Desire, thou dost befool me. Thou shalt cease. But vain the word, vain, vain, not in aloofness and not caring, lieth peace. He said, I will submit. I am defeated. God has depleted my life of its rich gain. Oh, futile murmurings, why will you not cease? But vain the word, vain, vain, not in submission, lieth peace. He said, I will accept the breaking sorrow. Which, not today, but God tomorrow, will to his son explain. Then did the turmoil deep within me cease. Not vain the word. Not vain. For in acceptance lieth peace. In acceptance lieth peace. But you see, this acceptance which brings peace is only possible for those who have grasped the first lesson. The first lesson. That if we truly seek for and desire the will of God above our own, we will not accept God's will unless we desire His will above our own until our hearts can truly say and mean, do the thing, Lord, that pleases Thee. And so we, in a sense, we come full circle. And we're going to close with this last quote. If your prayer at its deepest was not for what you wanted. Listen to that. If your prayer at its deepest was not for what you wanted, but for what He whom you love best saw to be most for his glory, then your prayer is answered. 
It's always answered. You cannot see how? Never mind. He sees how. Is that not enough? Is that not enough? So how can we summarize what we've learned from Amy Carmichael's life? Well, we learn, first of all, in prayer, to want what God wants. We learn to want what God wants. Secondly, we learn to lay our life down in prayer to see what to see that what God wants comes to pass. Right? In order to see God's will come to pass. But finally, we also learn to trust our God. We learn to accept what He gives. To trust our God by accepting the circumstances of His choice. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this life laid down. And the blessings that were given to so many because of that life laid down. And we, Father, I asked that we might ourselves learn these lessons and live in light of these lessons. We might learn to accept the circumstances of your choice. Because at the deepest part of our being, we desire what you desire. We desire what pleases you. We pray that you would work that within us. The doing, the willing and the doing according to your good pleasure. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.